Job story. Grab your Bible. Go to Genesis 19. And if you don't have a Bible, go back there and get one. You probably already know what I'm going to say, but you need a Bible. So you need a Bible. That's not my personal opinion. That's a statement of fact. You need a Bible. And today you will especially need a Bible. Some of what I say will be on the board or on the screen. Some won't. In fact, uh, what I'm going to walk through in Genesis 19 largely won't be because I want you to look down at your Bible. The reason for that is when you leave here, I don't want you leaving here trying to remember what Dave said. I want you to just be able to open it right back up, like right where you right where you stopped, because it's his word, it's not my word. We've been going through this story of God chronologically, and what we're trying to do is just see who God is by looking through his word in a big picture, okay? And we're not covering everything, but we are going to go from front to back over the course of time here and cover a lot of high points where we can just look in and see, okay, who is God as we work through this thing? So, so far... We talked about the Trinity, who God was. We talked about how he created all things. We talked about how he created Adam and Eve. He created mankind. We talked about how they sin. And as a result of their sin, God, uh, death entered the world. But God also brought the promise of a seed, of a, a, a child, a seed that would come, that would destroy the works of the devil, that would restore uh, mankind to uh, God. And since then, we've been following the hunt, so to speak, for this seed. And this promise of God. Cain and Abel are born. Cain kills Abel. Uh, the seed continues through Seth. Seth's lineage goes down until things get crazy. And then we run into the flood. God wipes it clean and begins again with Noah's family. Or continues. He doesn't really begin again. He just continues because Noah wasn't created then. Um, and then he continues. The seed continues through Noah. The lineage goes down farther. And we come to Abraham. And then the Bible zooms in again on Abraham as this family, this patriarch of a family that's going to become a great nation that God made promises to, okay? So, in this story of Abraham, uh, he has a nephew, and his nephew, and he split. We'll look at that in a second. And as a result, his nephew ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom is the place. Gomorrah is like a side city connected, kind of like the Tri-City, or a, kind of like a Dallas-Fort Worth type thing, but on a small scale. So anyway, he ends up in Sodom. We'll talk about that today. So today we're looking at two angels came to Sodom. This is one of my favorite statements in the Bible. That's a direct, that's the first five words of uh, Genesis 19, right out of the gun. It's just five little words. They seem so strange together, but they're also strangely encouraging to hear, depending on if you consider yourself an angel or a citizen of Sodom, but... I think these are powerful words. Two angels came to Sodom. All right. So let me read Genesis 19, uh, chapter 12. Uh, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 12. I'll get it out here in a second. Just read a few verses here and then we'll jump in. Then the Lord, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, son-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. But we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get up, out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Let me pray. Lord, your word is absolutely amazing. And uh, each week I confess before you, and I mean it, Lord, that it's your word. And I'm terrified of putting my own words where your words are. I don't want that to ever happen. God, I pray your words are put where my words are. Not just now, but every day. And I know I fail at that frequently, but I certainly don't want to fail at that now. Lord, I know I have the privilege of a microphone, but it's your microphone, not mine. It's your stage, not mine. It's your church, not mine. I'm here as a student, as a part of the family that wants to learn from what your word says, just the same. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, many of you probably don't have any idea who uh, Philippe Petty is. Anybody know who he is? You may know when I start talking about him. He was born in August of 1949 in France. He loved magic. He loved carnival. And he loved climbing things. By the time he was 16, he'd mastered uh, the wire, walking on the wire. He reached this point where he could do front flips, back flips, somersaults. He could ride a unicycle, a bicycle. He could sit on a chair. He could jump through hoops on it, and he got bored with it. So in June of 1971, he secretly installed a cable between the two towers of Notre Dame, and he walked on it, back and forth, juggling and doing tricks and stunts, and the crowds below celebrated and shouted. And In 1974, he did the same thing in Sydney, Australia, on the bridge, the Sydney Harbor Bridge, installed one and did it there. But... Still unsatisfied with the impressiveness of the challenge or the stunts, in August of 1974, he walked between the World Trade Towers in New York, who were, they were almost finished. They weren't quite finished, but they were close. They were, they were built all the way up. They just weren't fully occupied. And 1,312 feet above the concrete, he walked back and forth on these things, on this wire, and danced. He laid down on his back on it. He even knelt down at one point and saluted all the watchers that were below and the crowds were cheering and and going on. And and I'm not hating this guy when I say this, but I find it interesting how closely we treat sin to that. The the same way we're kind of unsatisfied and so we we fool around with simple little sins if there were such a thing. And, And then we... If we're not careful, we get unsatisfied with those, and and it starts to climb. We continuously seek greater closeness to danger. You know, we we reach this point without even knowing what we're going to gain from it, where we're drawn to the challenge of being that close to falling but not. And I think we all we all wrestle with that at some point. We walk the wire, we get higher, we get higher, we start. Dancing maybe and we start even saluting the people who are cheering us on because they're below us anyway They're down at the bottom and there's no way we'll fall. There's no way we're going to fall until we do Right until we do so my question today is this that I mean how concerned are we about sin? Genuinely like how concerned are you how close are you living to it right now? How concerned are you about others who are trapped in it and before you say yeah i really hate it is there evidence that you really hate it what is 
So I give you, always give you a, a kind of a one sentence statement of where we are today. So today it's on your sheet if you've got one. When we live our lives close to sin, we risk being swept into the suffering that comes with it. That's as black and white as it gets. And then we de- become dependent on God's mercy and the prayers of others for deliverance, okay? That's what we're looking at today. So backstory really fast. I mentioned it already. Abraham and Lot decide to part ways. You can read this on your own in Genesis chapter 13 because they've outgrown their space. And then in verse 10 of chapter 13, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley. So Abraham and Lot decide to split and Abraham looks this way towards the Jordan Valley, sees it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram, Abram who would become Abraham, settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot uh, settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Tells you something about Lot's character here and also about sin. Lot's uh, choosing for himself what's best instead of offering it to the other, what appears best. And it also tells you something very important. Sin always looks like paradise. Sin always looks like paradise. Looks like it. So chapter 19, you have to look in your Bibles here, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom. Now, if you don't know who those two angels are, go back and look. Uh, listen to last week or turn back a page in your Bible. I'm not going to do it now. But two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face. Literally, the word is nostrils to the earth. So he literally puts his nose in the ground in front of these guys. It says in the evening, uh, but there's no reason to believe that Lot was alone. This had been after the crowds had kind of dispersed. But in fact, it's probably likely that he wasn't alone because shortly crowds amass who know that these guys are there. So there doesn't mean he was by himself because he was sitting there. This is not 2 a.m. And it says sitting. The word literally means dwelling or abiding. And I think, personally, he probably lived there. Because he's, he's, he's going to say, turn aside to my house. Literally, I feel like he's sitting outside of his house in the front, up by the city gate. Why does that matter? Well, because the city gate was not the fastest way out. That's not why. It's not because he stopped there because he didn't want to go too far in. City gate, especially in, in historical times, you know, cities were surrounded by walls. Well, the city gate was the area where everybody came in, everybody left. So you get to know everybody right there. And that gate, that once you come through the gate, this big, huge open area where markets were, where people gathered, where if there was a public execution, it went on, where government held their rule and and decisions were made, uh, announcements were made for the whole city. They would come there. Don't think about the five million people of Phoenix here. It was a small, it would have been a city, but it wasn't a gigantic one. People could have gathered in that area. So him being there is saying that he's either trying to be somebody important inside him or he already is. One of the two. In fact, You'll see in a bit in verse 9, they refer to him as judge in a sense. So he's already got some kind of position of recognition and authority. So I don't think him being at that gate is because he's trying to stay close to the exit. It's the polar opposite. I think he's trying to be important inside him. But he rose to meet them. I love this. That same word, rose to meet them, it means to come against. So it's almost like he raced up and fell in front of them and said, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop right where you are. 
Like he, he's being hospitable, but he's kind of getting in their way. Like with intent to cut him. He's greeting them, but with intent to cut them off. Maybe he saw that, maybe they were attractive. I don't know, but he saw something in them that for whatever reason causes him to race up there and he's clearly concerned about his safety, about their safety, and he stops them from coming in. Which tells you he knows full well how wicked his city is, right? And it says Lot kneels to them. Does he know who they are? Does he know they're angels? Unlike Abraham, God hasn't appeared to Lot repeatedly. Um, Based on Lot's decisions, life choices here, I don't know that he would have recognized they were from God. He might have. We're not told. He might have. Maybe he thought they were prophets. We don't know, but... Perhaps he thought they were diplomats or some kind of royalties. I don't, we don't know what they look like. Maybe they just look really innocent. Maybe, and I'm not trying to be weird, but given the context, maybe they look, maybe they appeared as teenagers. You know, young, young, good looking men that were innocent looking. You know, you know where I'm going with that. Whatever. Lot's desperate to protect them no matter what. Okay? So look at verse two. And he said, my lords, not calling them God here. That's just a, an authority figure. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Crash inside, he's saying, and then get up early and get out of here. And he says, they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to sleep on the ground. It just means that they're going to go you know, right into the middle of the town and we'll just find another place to stay. We'll stay in a hotel right in the middle of the town or Whatever the case may be. But he pressed them strongly. All but saying, not, not a chance. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house. So they, they do. And he made them a feast or a banquet. Baked unleavened bread. That's the word matzah. You may know that word. That's what unleavened bread translates to in Hebrew. Matzah. And they ate. That's pretty cool, by the way. Side note. These were not floating spirits with wings. These angels were actually in human form because they actually ate food. Just a little side note. Uh, how does that all that work? I don't know. You tell me how angels do anything they do, okay? So I don't know, but that's the case. All right? It says uh, matzah there, or that unleavened bread. Now, this is before the Passover. This is before Exodus and all of that. Um, but in the same way, Lot's intent here was that the men get up in the morning and leave in a hurry. That's what God told the Israelites. You're going to get up in the morning from Egypt and you're going to leave in a hurry. So you don't have time for your bread to rise. Make unleavened bread so you're prepared to go. Same thing here. By giving him unleavened bread, he's literally saying, I'm not wasting time letting bread rise. In the morning, you got to sleep, crash, whatever, but y'all are out of here. Like fast, you know. Uh, verse 4. But. Before they lay down, moments, moments later, they've had time to eat, and that's about it. Now watch this. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, both sexes, all the way to the last man, three times mentioning the word man, and including that there were witnesses from all the people there, surrounded the house. Now this, again, is not millions. We're not talking about Phoenix Metro. Uh, and they would already be in a, you know, gathering at the gate if there was town announcements and whatnot. So whatever, the whole town has kind of crowded in there up against the door here. And they called out a lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, I know this is not popular, but it's in the text, so we're going to talk about it, okay? Um, years ago, 
when the homosexual agenda began to get accepted by the church and churches in general, I guess, the argument was made about this in particular, that this is not about homosexuality. It's about uh, inhospitable, inhospi- not being hospitable. can't say the word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, they're not being hospitable. And in fact, maybe it's about rape, but it's not about the act of homosexuality is what the argument says. In fact, this reached a peak in 2012. When there was a Queen James Bible published, if you've never heard of that, you can Google it and look it up for yourself. It's known as the Gay Bible or the Big Fabulous Bible. And it is a King James translation where the editors, who chose to remain anonymous, so you have no idea what their credentials are of any kind, they claim that the all the references to homosexuality in the Bible were not in any Bible prior to 1946. And they claim since 1946 there's been bad translations that have added these uh, phobic language into the Bible that wasn't there before. And any reference to homosexuality in the Bible is wrong. And, of course, they are the only ones who have it all right, they say. You can Google this. I'm not going to go into it. But sin stacks on top of sin... Until we're justifying it from the bottom up. And what's the biblical truth about it? Okay. I, I, I'm not, not, not my opinion. Not how I feel. What's the biblical truth about it? No, and we're not addressing this because it's a hot topic. We're addressing it because it's in the Bible and we've come across it. So a couple of things to begin with. The verse that we're looking at, this verse makes a clear point. Look, it's overemphasizing men. Men, men, all so, yes, this is about rape, but also about homosexuality. It, it can't, it's, it's about as blunt as it gets. They argue to know means, hey, we just wanted to get to know them. But is that true? Biblically speaking, what does it mean to know someone? Well, let's look at the same author, Moses, the same book, Genesis, and the same historical time, ancient times, you know, back when all this is written. Genesis chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she what? Conceived and bore Cain. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. I don't have to keep going. Any basic understanding of biology knows exactly what this is talking about. Right? Knows exactly. Keep going. Genesis 24, verse 16. The young woman, Rebecca, was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. What does that mean? She was what? Virgin, right? All right. It, 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 there's a lot of other examples you can keep going through in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament clearly references sex in that context and in particular homosexuality in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 there are tons of rules about sex it's not only about that but it's in there it's about all different kinds of sex that are sins uh you know with family members with animals I mean it's in there and in verse just one example there's several references to it but Leviticus 18 verse 22 says you shall not lie with a man as with a woman it's an abomination well, how about the New Testament? Everybody says, well, that's the Old Testament. We're not in the law anymore or whatever the argument is. How about the New Testament? Well, it's blunt in the New Testament too. 
Romans verse one, chapter 1, verse 26, Paul wrote, For this reason, you can read the whole chapter for your own, but for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves due penalty for their error. Now, I don't have to pick all this apart. I'm just saying you can read it and know what he's talking about. And if it's not enough, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6. He's talking about he's listing sinful lifestyles. And he says, don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. Different letter to a different church at a different time period, but still Paul listing sinful lifestyles. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars. Okay, there you go. So everybody's quick argument, though, is aren't we all liars? Don't we all lie? You can't judge me because you lie. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. This is a list, and homosexuality is on it. It is on it. So, yes, we are all guilty of sin, but, but the fact that there are sins on this list don't, doesn't, that, that I do doesn't somehow make one that's on that list that you do right all of a sudden. That's not the way it works. Yes, it is a list, and yes, it's on there, and yes, I'm guilty of some of these and yes, if you're in that, you're guilty of those too. That's what it is. So here, here's the ultimate question for us, though, in the New Testament world that we're living in. What does God really think about homosexuality? Like all sin, he hates it. What does God think about homosexuals? Like all sinners, he died for them. What should we, the church, believers, think about them? Two of our core values. We only have three, two of them. Love them unconditionally. Love them unconditionally and uncompromisingly share the truth. Love them and love them enough to tell them the truth. Just like you better love me enough to tell me if I'm lying or I'm cheating on Molly or I'm doing whatever. You better love me enough to come get in my face and say, bro, I love you enough to tell you you're messing up. And you can say all day you think you're right, but you're dead wrong. Look at verse 6, chapter 19, verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and he shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wisely. Look how diplomatic he's being here. Brothers? Brothers? Really? I beg you? But then, man, his diplomacy goes stupid. <laughs> Look at verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Again, no, clearly here means sex. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter or the protection of my roof. How messed up has Lot gotten here? I mean, he's offering his two virgin daughters to this mob of sex-crazed men Rather than two complete strangers. And you can argue if you want, but you're going to be wrong that this is an Eastern culture thing. That's absolutely untrue. I know Eastern culture pretty well. And I can tell you right now, family rules all. He would ne No Eastern culture would throw out their own family for a perfect stranger that they welcomed in their home. That's not, that's not true. Not happening. And either way, it's totally wrong in God's economy. 
totally wrong in God's economy. Nothing about what he's doing here is right. Now, one possible explanation that I found in one commentary says this. Maybe it would be like sarcastically saying to a mortgage company, why don't you just take the clothes off my children's back and the food off their plates? If this is the correct understanding, then Lot's offer of his daughters was intended to prick the conscience of the mob, just as they would hopefully never consider treating a citizen's daughter in this way, so the inhabitants should protect Lot's guests also. That's maybe the case, but that's pretty generous in my opinion. So verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become our judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break down the door. Clearly, Lot was not as important as he thought he was with these people. You're not one of us. You're not a sodomite, Hebrew. Get out of our, get out of our way. We'll deal worse with you. Man, listen to me. What's worse? Consider what they're desiring here. And they're telling we're going to deal worse with you. I mean, come on. Their desire here has pushed them to break down a door. And, and I can tell you right now, sex outside of God's design, whether it's hetero, hetero or homo or whatever, sex outside of God's design almost always ends this way. It builds this desire that's only like temporarily satisfied. And then it burns hotter each time. Instantly, my brain thinks about cocaine. I know probably most of y'all don't, but <laughs> that's my part of my past. Instantly, my brain thinks about that. And with cocaine, like the, if you don't know, now you know, but the first hit is so intense and so powerful and so strong, but it fades in like seconds. You know, it starts to fade in seconds. And within minutes, you want another one. But the intent, the, the, you, the intensity that you desire it has grown, but then the actual second time you do it, it's not as strong. It still might be strong, but it's, it's not as strong. It's like it's faded, and that cycle continues as you continue to do cocaine for however long you do it till you pass out, each hit leaving you with a less intense high but a more intense desire for it. And that's where these people have gotten sexually is just out of control, maddening desire they can't be satisfied. Verse 10. But the men reached out their hands. These are the angels who are inside. They reach out their hands and they brought Lot into the house with them and they shut the door. So they reach out. They yank him back in. They shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house. Now, I don't know how y'all imagine that happening. Do you think that they went outside and raised the pole up and said, do you think light came out of their hands or whatever? No. And I'll tell you why. They got him and pulled him inside, and what does it say they did after that? Shut the door. I don't think the crowd even knew that the angels were responsible for their sudden blindness. Either way, as a result of the angels' decision, the crowd is now blind outside. So the crowd is now suddenly find themselves unable to see outside. All right? Um, and it says... Both small and great, so they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So the blindness had just made them madder. Now they're fighting harder to satisfy their desire and to maybe get the ones that blinded them if they think they know, if they think it's them. But either way, that desire is is 
out of control. And it's easy for us to throw stones here and say, man, we could never, I would never be that crazy. Man, I would never be that crazy. Yeah, you would. Maybe not for that sin. But if you're honest with yourself, at some point in your life, it's highly likely that there has been something that you would go after blindly. Look at verse 10. But the men, or excuse me, verse 12. But the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Is there anybody else here that belongs to you? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against, against its people has become great before the Lord, or in the face of the Lord. The idea is it's all in God's face, and he can't stand it. Lord, all caps again, means the proper name, Jehovah, Yahweh, that, that person. And the Lord, Jehovah Yahweh, has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, oh, get out of this place for the Lord's about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting or acting a fool, making a joke. Uh, where were his sons-in-law? Think about this. In the crowd. Right, David. He went out. Didn't say he went out of the city. He went out the door. And all the men of the city are in there. It said it multiple times. His sons-in-law are in the crowd. Trying to get at the... How messed up. Lot has not even been able to influence his own family here. Lot's influence in Sodom hasn't even reached the men who are going to marry his daughters. And you want to know how messed up his daughters are. We're not going to go over it, but you can read in verse 32. They get Lot drunk later on and, try, and get pregnant by him. Lot's family is, is, is a serious disaster here. His righteous attitude may be there, but his family has become so mixed with this city. You know, that's the danger of compromising with sin, right? Look at verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your daughters, your, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. I mean, hours later, Lot's still having to be pushed here. I love the way the original Hebrew reads here, by the way, where it says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. Literally, it says, And like the dawn, he ascended, and they urged Lot. Now, I'm not saying the translation's bad, but sometimes you read the original and it makes you think a little bit differently. And like the dawn, he ascended and the angels urged Lot. I picture God himself is rising to now with the dawn to destroy this city. And the angels are like, get out now. And still, verse 16, but he lingered. Or delayed or hesitated. So the men seized him, grabbed him, his wife, his two daughters, by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Literally seized by the hand. You have two angels, that's four hands, and there are four people getting out of this. How overly well, overwhelmingly merciful is God? I mean, at some point you feel like you'd be like, okay, dummy, fine. When we read later in Second Peter, and this is where we might get a little confused with what's going on. So in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 uh, Peter's talking about this occasion, and he says, If God rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, Lot was. 
Verse 8 says, For as that righteous man, Lot, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So what's up, man? Was Lot righteous or what? Well, Lot's selfishness, first of all, led him to this place where he's now become immersed in a sinful environment. He's surrounded by temptation. And what Peter's saying here is that he's tormenting his own soul. Did you see that? He said he's tormenting his own soul by being there. And God rescued him. It's not like he, he came to his senses and came out. God had to rescue him. It's what it says. Not because he was righteous in himself, but because he was family to Abraham, made him family to God. He clearly had faith in Jehovah, although it was certainly messed up at the time, and because Abraham prayed for him, I would argue. But he and his family were definitely affected by Sodom. A few things. He immorally offers his own two daughters to the mob. His wife, you'll see in a minute, looks back in sorrow over being drug out because she doesn't want to go. His son-in-laws both want the angels, the men who came instead, and then they refuse to leave and make fun of him. He continually bargains with God and with these angels. You'll see that. He may be a drunk because he gets drunk shortly after getting out, and his daughters have sex with him. His family has clearly been affected horribly by living in this environment. So why note that he was righteous at all? What does that even mean? And I said last week that no one was righteous in Sodom. Nobody. So if I said that, how in the world can Peter say that he was righteous or call him righteous? How can it be both? Well, I said that no one was righteous because the Bible does. Romans 3.10. He says, as it is written, what does as it is written mean? This is in the Bible. So Paul, writing Romans, is quoting something from somewhere else. You can go look. It's in two places in Psalms that he's quoting. So Old Testament, New Testament, he's quoting this. None is righteous, no, not one. What does he say? None is righteous. How many? No, not one. I could stop, but he elaborates. Let me make it more clear for you. No one understands. No one even seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. What? Not even one. There's no chance that Lot in and of himself was somehow excluded from these verses. Especially not when we look at his life. So why call Lot righteous? Because his righteousness wasn't his own. His righteousness wasn't his own. What do I mean? Well, Paul said it like this, as long as we're talking about Paul. In Philippians 3, verse 9, Paul said, Being found in Christ, him talking about himself, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, my faith, because of my faith, God has given me his righteousness. There's nothing in me that's right. Let's look at where it all began. If you go all the way, you don't have to turn, but in Genesis chapter 15, with Abraham, verse 5, he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, shall your so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness was credited to him or counted to him because he trusted God. Because Abraham believed God was God and God would do what he said he'd do. That's it. Abraham was far from perfect. Go back and look at the things he did. He laughed at God when God told him he'd have a kid. 
He tried to do it himself by sleeping and getting his or sleeping with his Egyptian uh, handmaid, get her pregnant. Uh, he lies about his wife and twists the truth about his wife in order to hand her off because he's afraid of getting hurt. You can read all these things in your own time. He, it wasn't his works; it was his faith that God recognized. Look at Romans four two. If Paul saying if Abraham was justified by his works, then he's got something he can brag about, but not before God. Why? What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Credited means it was put in your account. If I credit you something, I'm putting something in your account. So what he's saying is it it was given to him. Righteousness, being right with God, was given to him. It was accounted to him. It was put in his account. And guess what that means? He's indebted over it. He's indebted over it. But Christ, just like with us, paid that debt. But Christ paid that debt. And as messed up as Lot is, he obviously still believes in Jehovah by faith, even though it's certainly become challenged. Let's finish this up. Look at verse 17. Almost done. Chapter 19, verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. So they're outside. Get out of here. And Lot says to them, oh, no, no, my Lord. Behold, your servant has found favor in your eyes. Obviously, you, you like me because you saved me. You've shown me this great kindness and saved my life. But I can't escape to the hills lest disaster overtake me and I die. It, you know, I'll, I'll, somebody will rob me, steal me, kill, kill me, whatever. Verse 20. Behold, the... This city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape over there. It's just a little one, and my life will be saved. And he said to him, there's a he here. So it's either that one of the angels speaking here, or maybe God's entered the conversation. But either way, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city with which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive. In other words, I must honor my word. I've said I won't do anything and if you go there, so I'm going to give you time to get there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. Zoar just means little. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. So it's all the way up noonday. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur or object. Those are, it's literally talking about brimstone, like rock objects and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It's almost like a volcano. That's a cool statement. I don't have time to break down, but the Lord rained from the Lord. Again, you have this picture of a plural God. I don't care how you look at it. It's there. The Lord reigned from the Lord. And he overthrew those cities, all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him, behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So why so harsh? All she did was look back. Why is that such a big deal? It means to gaze, to consider. They said three things. Run, don't look back, don't stop. And her actions here are related to like hesitation, to stopping, turning your ground, regretting your decision, thinking, wait, what are we doing here? Uh, and, and in the context, she did more than just look back. She went back. And she wasn't all the way back, but she went back. Notice that God didn't do anything until Lot and his daughters reached Zoar, but Lot's wife's not there. In fact, it says that she was behind him, not like a step or two. It's like she turned and went back the other way and got swept up in the fire. And thank God that's not a principle of the way he handles sin or we'd all be pillars of salt. Just saying. 
for looking back. And the fact that she became salt is one reason why people say the Dead Sea area is where Sodom and Gomorrah was located. In fact, at the Dead Sea, there's a formation that's known as Lot's wife. I think I got a picture of it. <coughs> now, I'm not saying that it is, but I'm just saying for visual purposes, Israel actually recognizes that as Lot's wife. But Jesus, speaking of end times, referenced Sodom. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, he said, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. He's saying, don't look back. Don't look back. Warren Wearsby wrote, Sodom's fate is a picture of the wrath that's to come. When men think there is peace and safety, then destruction will fall. Lot's rescue, meanwhile, is an illustration of the removal of the church prior to the pouring out of the wrath of God. The Lord rescued Lot for Abraham's sake and he'll deliver his church from the wrath for Jesus' sake. Verse 27, Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley, and he looked. Twice it says he looked, so looking wasn't to sin. And behold, the sun, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. What do you think Abraham's feeling here? What do you feel about it? As we're going through the story, do you start to feel yourself celebrating that God's being bringing justice or is it breaking your heart? How should we feel? How should we feel knowing God's going to handle the whole world that way in a sense? So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities. In which Lot had lived. So it's not about how many people were righteous. There's only four that were saved. And Abraham was negotiating at ten. It's not about that. It's about the fact that Abraham interceded for his family. And it pictures Christ who intercedes for us. Rescuing us from the fire and the judgment on the sin by grace. We mix with. And we're having to be drug out by grace. Having to have our eyes open to the fact that we were blind along with the rest of mankind and groping at the opportunity to sin. So let me ask you this. Are we like the angels who are interested in drawing people out and rescuing people from what we know is coming? Are we more like Lot, desperate to fit in, thinking that we'll just win them from within? Meanwhile, they're still lost. They're facing the fire of judgment. Hey, while we're living right alongside them every day. Being in the world, not of it, is not an excuse to surround yourselves with sin. People always point out that Jesus hung out with sinners. I heard a pastor once say a great response to that. He said to, I'm going to quote him. He said, to claim that Jesus hung out with sinners in order to justify your actions is to fail to realize who you are in that story. That's a great statement. To claim that Jesus hung out with sinners in order to justify your actions is to fail to realize who you are in that story. We need to stop flirting with sin, man. We need to come out of it. And start leading others to rescue. That's what we need. So look. Let me ask you something. Maybe you feel like you're trapped by sin. Maybe that's you today. I don't know. Maybe you feel like, hey, nothing but punishment for you. There's a hell. You're not escaping it. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe that's how you feel. 
I can tell you one thing for a fact. Just as two angels came to Sodom, Jesus came to this earth. And just as these two angels extended their hand to this family, Jesus extends his hand to you. The question is, will you let him lead you out? If that's you today and that's something you want to do, I want you to tell him. Everybody stand up with me and we're going to finish with a song. But I, I want you to tell him today. Can you, it's three simple things. Can you admit who you are? Can you admit who you are? Nobody got to tell me I know I'm a sinner. Can you admit who you are? Can you believe he is who he says he is? I know, look, I don't have all the answers. I can't explain it, but I believe you are who you say you are, God. I trust that. And can you trust that what he's done is enough? There's no righteousness in me. I know it. But your cross, your cross was for me. Your cross, your suffering was enough. Can you do that? If you can Tell them today your own words and then come tell us. Let me pray. God, you are amazing and awesome. And Lord, I I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you help us love unconditionally people who are trapped in sin. uh, Because we also, Lord, wrestle with sin, even as believers. Lord, but I also pray that you help us be bold to protect ourselves and our families from being drawn in and compromising. Lord, you you are holy and you tell us to be holy, set apart as you are. Lord, we ask all these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.